Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. And today we're talking with free speech hero and longtime fire friend, Donald Downs. He is the Alexander Michael John Professor of Political Science Emeritus and Affiliate Professor of Law and Journalism Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And since retiring, Professor Downs has been the lead faculty advisor to the Free Speech and Open Inquiry Project at the Institute for Humane Studies in Washington, D.C., and is the author of the book released last year, Free Speech and Liberal Education, A Plea for Intellectual Diversity and Tolerance. Professor Downs, welcome onto the show. It's good to finally have you. Well, glad to be here, Nico. Good to see you. So uh, the first time I ever heard you speak, and I, th- I believe that I ever met you, was many moons ago. It might have been when I was a fire intern in 2011 or 2010 when you gave a speech at Bren Mawr during the oh, yeah, uh, fire student network. Okay. Yeah, that was a fun weekend. Yeah, you had the kind of a bullet point list of principles that you were going through. And, right. And I, I yeah, always remember that. Right. Yeah. And you were still a faculty member. You hadn't retired by then. Right. No, right? I still had about five years to go. So I want to introduce our listeners to you and your background, which I find to be kind of unique. So correct me if I'm wrong. The first book you ever wrote was Nazis and Skokie, Freedom, Community, and the First Amendment. And you didn't take the expected approach in that book that you might come to expect from someone of your stature in the free speech community. What was what was your path to that book? And, you know, what was the argument in it that surprise, might surprise someone today? Well, you know, Skokie, I was in, in grad school at Berkeley and I had to write a dissertation. And it was, uh, you had a major in three fields in the poli-sci department there. And I had done American politics and political philosophy or theory. And I had to pick a third field. I didn't know what to pick. And so I did one night of public administration in a, in a seminar and came out of that and said, well, you know, we need public administration, but that's not for me. So I had to find a third field. And I looked at the reading list for public law, they called it, public and constitutional law. It's a separate field. Now it's been merged into American politics usually, but uh, it was a separate field at that time. And I liked the list. Interesting stuff. And it's a way of sort of combining political theory and practical law that sort of come together. And I know that uh, Holmes, who's one of my First Amendment heroes, of course, I talk about him a lot in the new book, um, said that he became a lawyer or studied law because it was a way of practically applying philosophical thoughts in the real world. And so that kind of appealed to me. And at the time, so then I, I did the field, took the exams, and then I had to do this thing they call a, a PhD dissertation. And at the time, the Skokie case was going on outside of Chicago. So this is 1977, 78. 77, 78. <clears throat> and um, it took a long time to get it done and get it published, but uh, that had just started. And I was still in the midst of the other prelims. So that I finally, when I finally came to the point to do the dissertation, the Skokie case had been resolved, but it was still making headlines. And probably in First Amendment law and lore, maybe the most prominent non-Supreme Court 
free speech case ever. And so it intrigued me. <clears throat> and <clears throat> as an undergraduate, I had studied with a, a well-known professor at Cornell named Walter Burns, who was a more conservative kind of a Straussian political thinker, uh, who was also did constitutional law. And Burns uh, took a side that was more, we need some restrictions on non-virtuous speech. He was a that in that kind of mode back then. He changed his mind later once he experienced speech codes and things like that. But anyway, so I was intrigued with that. So I started looking to Skokie. And uh, I was working with a professor, uh, Bob Kagan, at Berkeley, who was also very empirically oriented. So he said, you can't just write a dissertation about this issue. You've got to go and talk to the people. <laughs> You've got to do a case study, and then you generate broader thoughts out of it. And so I went to Skokie, and it was really a one of the great experiences of my life. A lot of my books, I've done a lot of interviews and gone into places uh, to talk to people. And um, uh, so I interviewed the survivors, six of them. And uh, my wife's talking to me in the corner. <laughs> oh, it's all right. <laughs> she, she, she said I'm being too loud, which I, I tend to do when I do these things. Uh, and um, so I did all the research and interviewed everybody. And I was really overwhelmed just by the impact that the Nazis coming to Skokie would have on survivors. Yeah, there was something like you know, 6,000 Holocaust survivors there. Well, and they that's just sure. Somewhere in that neighborhood. There's, Skokie had 70,000 residents at that time, 30,000 Jews. And actually, no, it, wasn't, it was more about between 800 and 1,200 survivors. <clears throat> but it was the third most prominent area for survivors in the country outside of New York City and Los Angeles. And they had all come there, you know, because they, they talked to each other. This is a safe haven. And so they had come into Skokie to escape the nightmares of the past. And then 30 years later, here, come this little, here comes this little punk Nazi party. And they really were. From an objective standpoint, this was not the nightmare reborn. But in their minds, it was, and understandably so. Yeah, I, I actually am... Uh, just finished up a documentary about Ira Glasser, who took over at the ACLU in the wake of Skokie. You know, Arye Nyer, of course, was the leader of the national ACLU during the majority of the case. But Ira was the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union and, you know, a large number of uh, Jewish constituents for that Civil Liberties Union. And so he spent a lot of time defending the case. And as part of the story we tell about Ira's life in this documentary, Mighty Ira, we revisit the Skokie case. Yeah. And, and, Interesting story. You're well. You're well educated on the issue. It's great. Uh, <clears throat> when I when Fire did its 15th anniversary dinner in New York five years ago, I was introduced to him, and uh, we we ended up speaking together for about 10 minutes. And he told me that uh, he thought that Skokie would make or break the ACLU at that time because you know the ACLU took the side of the Nazis' right to, to demonstrate. And the lawyer who defended the Nazis in the Chicago area, because Skokie's right outside of Chicago. Yeah, David uh, Goldberg. David Goldberg, a Jew. And the survivors I interviewed to a person said that they were angry, they were angrier at Goldberger than they were at the Nazis because they considered him, you know, a traitor. And it was very tough for him. And you, it was this experience interviewing the survivors that led you to kind of take the position in your book, which if I'm summarizing it from the summary of the book, it's that 
you know, content neutrality presents an argument for the minimal abridgment of free speech when that speech is intentionally harmful. You think that there should be, you know, a tweak on that con uh, content right, neutrality. Right. I mean, it was a strange argument. I mean, it, it got a lot of notice and mm -hmm. it got a lot of you know, reviews and interviews and got some awards from it. And uh, so it made a splash, but it was a strange book in certain ways. Because on one hand, it was I sort of started coining language that I'm not saying it was directly picked up uh, because I wrote it, but it was consistent with the later kind of language that critical legal studies people would use. You know, I talked about assaultive speech and things like that. And of course, in that context, it sort of was. It was like a threat for a lot of these people, even though it didn't conform to the technical legal standard of a threat because it was in the public forum. Uh, so in that sense, I was sort of doing something consistent with what would become a wave of censorship in the future. But also because of my background, I was, I tried to make it as, to draw the distinction as carefully as I could. So I didn't say we should outlaw group libel, which goes back to the Beauharnais case in 1948, I think it was around that time. The Supreme Court said that speech that it generally disparages groups based on religion and race, et cetera, may be abridged. Yeah, sort of yeah, an, anti an antiquated doctrine, though not dead. Uh, that's an interesting way of putting it, because that's, that's correct. Supreme Court's never overruled it, and it played a big role in the Skokie litiga litigation, but the lower federal courts, uh, both the federal district court and the appeals court, basically said other areas of First Amendment doctrine, as they've evolved, have now painted Beauharnais into a corner. Mm -hmm. So we refuse to apply it even though the Supreme Court's never overturned it. So, um, so I, was really, I was really taken with the survivors. And uh, at that time, the other side of the coin here- Did you that, interview Goldberger? Yes, I did. And I think he was, he was not happy about the book. He thought I treated him unfairly. And if I did, I regret that because I consider him a hero now. Have you, spoke, have you spoken with him since? I don't think so. Oh, yes, I did. I gave a talk at Ohio State Law School yeah, on a talk? totally different issue in 1993. It was brought in by Kagan, who was there on a one-year thing. And uh, we met and talked. And I told him I'd changed my mind. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, he was gracious. He's a, he's, a, he's a good guy. But I could still feel, you know, he was a little bit, little bit bitter about it and perhaps understandably so. Because uh, he took a lot of flack for it, but despite it, he 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 took most of the interviews that were asked of him. I mean, he went on the Phil Donahue show where Donahue packed the audience with survivors, and he handled himself. I can only imagine. I mean, his parents go to synagogue and they're vilified because he's their son. I you know it was and, awful. He, he was denounced by his rabbi with him out there in the congregation, and. Uh, uh, so he, he moved us when Frank Collin did his uh, first rally in Chicago, um, right, in the in the plaza, the federal plaza there before going to Marquette Park. He got his family out of town because he was worried there would be violence. Wow, against his family. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, because had they had the real demonstration, it might have changed First Amendment doctrine. I used to tell used to tell my students when I taught the First Amendment there are some very important doctrines like the doctrine against prior restraint. You know, the New York Times case involving the Pentagon Papers, sort of the Pentagon Papers case. And, you know, what would have happened had that information actually led to a national security debacle 
Now, the court may have had to kind of reconsider its doctrine, but fortunately it didn't. And it's sort of the same thing with this. You know, we Nazis have the right to demonstrate, but what if there was a mass kind of violence that took place because of it? Usually we've had these eruptions in very limited locations that then are not repeated. Well, you, you sort of sh- saw that with Charlottesville, right? I mean, Absolutely. someone did end up dying. Uh, but what you didn't see in Charlottesville, which you did see if you review the archival footage from especially the Marquette Park rally, um, there just wasn't a police presence in Charlottesville. And if you look at what happened in Marquette Park in 1978, there was, there, you know, it was like a division of police officers there. And that tells you a lot. And I talk about this in the new book, you know, the need for the authorities to maintain order. Liberty has to be ordered liberty. And to you, clamp down on political violence or the prospect of it. Right. And you've got to arrest people that are going to, you, you arrest speakers that incite under the legal standard, and you should deal with and even possibly arrest bystanders who threaten to do trouble because of the speakers. Right. That's the heckler's veto. Doctrine. Yeah, of course. So you need the power of the state to protect the liberty and also the concurrent rights of the listeners to hear what the speaker has to say. At Charlottesville, they stood down. It was a term of art that was being used back then with predictable results. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you tip your hat to this. As I mentioned earlier, your your Nazis and Skokie book challenges the doctrine of content neutrality. Yeah. But you said you changed your mind on that. What led to that? And and how soon after the book came out did you change your mind? It was mind? a while. It was a while. Um, several things happened. I talk about it in the, the new book a, a bit. The book isn't about me, so I don't talk about it a lot. Yeah. And just a reminder for our listeners, the book is Free Speech and Liberal Education. It came out last year and we're going to get to that in a bit. Right. Cato Institute. And um, um, well, first of all, I did another, my next book, which was my tenure book at Madison. I was at Notre Dame when I wrote that, the Nazi book, the Skokie book. And then I came to Madison, different kind of a context, different environment, different background. And um, I did a book on um, the new... uh, feminist approach to pornography, Catherine McKinnon and, and, and that group. And I realized what they were doing was really a, an attack, not just on a particular form of pornography, sort of changing traditional obscenity doctrine, which was more based on morals. This is more based on political equality agendas, which are you know good. I was all for political equality. But they wanted to get that way by restricting speech and distinguishing egalitarian from non-egalitarian pornography. And that was very viewpoint-based. And I considered it, along with the courts, to be pretty much a, an assault or an um, attempt to radically change First Amendment doctrine, which even in the Skokie book, I basically accepted. And I considered that this is, a, this is where this kind of thinking is going. And it was my first kind of wake up, wake up call about new arguments for censorship. And interestingly, um, the ordinance that McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin pushed and was adopted by a few communities around the country, including the arch conservative town of Indianapolis. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I went to Indiana University, so I oh, remember wow. that. So yeah. did my daughter. <laughs> oh, did she? Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, Strange Bedfellows was the name of one of my chapters and uh, in that book. But the ordinance was premised on four major 
prongs, they called it, uh, of legal attack. And one was basically said the mere presence of pornography in itself constitutes discrimination against women as they define pornography. And that boiled down to the proposition that expression or speech here is the same thing as action because its mere presence formed was a, a matter of discrimination, no matter where it was found. And no matter who was, who was engaged, I mean, it could be a pornography company owned by a woman. It could be women only. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't matter. matter. Uh, only the content mattered. And so, you know, harassment law would say, you know, some of the cases in the courts that pornography on the walls in a workplace constitutes sexual harassment, which is a form of discrimination and properly so. But that's a very specific context, sort of akin to fighting words, right? It's there, it's omnipresence, it's in a narrow context. But the ordinance was, for, you could find pornography at some little gas station in the middle of the desert, you know, like that last scene in Terminator 2 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the discrimination going on there. So I started seeing where the kind of approach I took in the Skokie book was headed. And that was the first sort of foreshadowing of that. And then the second thing was, you know, my teaching at Wisconsin. I started getting a lot of students. I really started seeing the importance of academic freedom. Speech codes started being talked about. That was when I really had my turning point when Wisconsin adopted a student and faculty speech code. And I became, you know, I was more into the profession by then. So I was more appreciative of the link between strong intellectual freedom and the pedagogical mission that I was becoming so attached to. But you could, but you could be an advocate for that within the educational context and still hold the position that you held in Skokie and just say that the academic environment is a unique environment, but you went broader than that. I went broader than that. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, the reason was just because I, you know, I was, Maybe because of the way I did my profession at Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a unique kind of context because most higher education, we, we evaluate professors on uh, research, teaching, and um, citizenship. Okay, what's the other? I forget the third, what it's called now. Oh my God, I've been, I've been um, retired too long. Yeah, well, now a lot of the colleges and universities are, you know, it, adding diversity and inclusion as something that they need to demonstrate. And that's an ideology, which is, you know, you can agree or disagree with it, but that's a little bit different. Uh, what the third prong is, um, it's not citizenship. I have to think of it. Every, everyone who's going to listen to this is going to say, my God, he can't remember what that third prong is. <laughs> every, I don't think anyone's going to fault you for that. <laughs> it's all part of higher education. Uh, but Wisconsin does, we have this thing called the Wisconsin idea. It goes way back to the La Follette era, where the university is there to also serve the state. And we have, we have Wisconsin Public Radio here. It's the third biggest public radio network in the country. Uh, we have a lot of outreach to the world. And so I think that was where the line between the ivory tower and the world behind it or outside of it. I think it's important to make that distinction, right? We want to be an ivory tower to some extent. But also I think it's important for at least a lot of us to have an impact on society. And so to me, that line between what happens in Skokie and what happens in the university was not as uh, tight as it had been before. 
So you you mentioned your interest in in speech codes and your experience on campus as a professor. Wasn't Wisconsin, if I'm recalling correctly, the subject of a speech code lawsuit in uh, in like the early 90s? Yes, right. And I should mention briefly, I was a faculty senate member, member when they passed those speech codes, and I voted for them. Oh. Because that was right before the tipping point, okay? And then later I became a leader of the movement to abolish the faculty speech code, so I did a 180. On that, <clears throat> but there were two. Well, codes. I should say, and 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 the and the con and the broader con- free speech context, there were a lot of current very active free speech advocates who had the opposite position in Skokie and sort of evolved. I mean, George Will is another another famous example of that. Right, right. So it's not unusual. It's actually a, a testament to uh, one's ability to, you know, reevaluate positions to change one's mind. You know, if you don't ever change your mind, how do you know your mind's working? Well, I think that's true. It's like it's, you know, there are different ways to change your mind, right? Or different reasons. I used to tell my students, your compromise is good if it's made in the name of principle. But if you're just compromising because you just want to get along or because you're, you know, what um, I guess it was Chesterton called open-mindlessness rather than open-mindedness. You want to kind of want to distinguish between the two. And it took me, I evolved. This was an evolution. And like I said, a lot of it was just due to my own intellectual, scholarly, and pedagogical development. So I started realizing what was at stake. Also, students pushed me. I had a great group of students that were free speech activists on campus. It was a diverse group in terms of gender and race. And they kept saying, Downs, your support of speech codes contradicts everything you're teaching us. It's not you. And um, eventually I realized that I had painted myself into a corner. I guess it's a metaphor I'm using right now when it came to speech codes, because here I was upholding speech codes over here. But everything else I was doing was based on having a wide open free speech environment. Well, the late 80s was a time when a lot of colleges and universities were passing speech code. I mean, the famous Dovey, Michigan case would, would later be struck down. But then the speech code at, at the University of Wisconsin that you voted for was also struck down, right? That was the student code that was struck down. Gotcha. And that was out of UW-Milwaukee's uh, student paper. They brought a lawsuit. Uh, Brady Williamson, who's a big Democratic activist in town. You might remember when, when Trump de- debated Clinton, there was a guy in the background who kept picking up her folder and, and moving it after the after the debate. And he was on he was on social media and everything. Who is this guy? It was Brady Williamson, who's a leading First Amendment uh, lawyer, attorney in Wisconsin. And he took that case on behalf of the UWM Post in Milwaukee. And they won it based on the, because it hadn't been restricted to fighting words. It was a broader hate speech kind of thing. And so he won it. The faculty code, however, stayed on the books. And the faculty code was much broader and did not make the same exceptions the student code made. But it was also of arguable constitutional status, meaning that because we're employees of the institution and we're doing our jobs inside the classroom, a case could be made. And I have a separate chapter in my new book on academic freedom versus regular free speech which kind of speaks to this, uh, an argument could at least be made potentially that the faculty speech code at least was arguably constitutional, 
but in terms of policy and pedagogy, bad. Yeah. So just for just as a point of clarification, the speech code you voted in favor of was the faculty one, or I voted did for the, both. They were both presented at the same time. To the fact, so the Senate, the faculty Senate would vote on both of them. Got you. Both of them, the, the student code got almost all the debate once that came through, and it was a fairly close vote actually. Uh, the faculty code just got voted in easily. It was an afterthought because we were told this is anti-harassment. It's a professional environment. You have to do what the university tells you. Okay. And uh, so the student code got struck down. It was that time, at that time that I changed my mind. 91 to 92, they set up a committee. And Donna Shalala was the chancellor. She was one of the leaders in the speech code movement in the country, a pioneer. And we put together a group. I spoke to it briefly, though, it's not, though I was not on the committee to come up with a revised speech code for the students. After the court case, yes. I'm assuming. And then we had a faculty senate meeting. And it was in preparation of that that I changed my mind. This is in the spring of 92. Turning point in my life. Because hmm. life was never the same afterwards. And uh, I, what they did was they limited the exception to fighting words. But they did not say it was only certain kinds of fighting words like race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, ethnicity, that those kinds of fighting words were prohibited, not others. And I was asked to go on to Wisconsin Public Radio and talk about the code. And they thought I was going to defend it. Because you had voted for it before. Yes. And the night before, I had a reckoning. And I was due, I had talked to my students, I had in a seminar, I called them, I called them my primal horde in Freud's language, because <laughs> they were just so interesting. And um, I thought about it hard, I published the book on pornography, and I suddenly realized, okay, I'm not for this thing. So I go on public radio, and I give a talk, usually it's an hour show, <clears throat> 15, 20 minutes I'm talking to the to the MC, and then they'd have callers. <clears throat> and I presented my case against the code. And then, and very quickly, after that, you know, they took a commercial break. Then we come back, and there's a call from a guy in McFarland, which is nearby Madison, a professor in the art school here. And his name was Richard Long. And he called me and he said, uh, he called in and he says, I want to thank you. Your arguments against the code, I think, are right on. But let me tell you, there's another code you're not talking about. And I said, what code? <laughs> and he, he says, oh, there's a faculty speech code. And I said, what are you talking about? We'd all forgotten about this faculty code. Oh, geez. <laughs> and in the meantime, all these cases had, several cases had been, had come up under its aegis that no one even knew about because it was just all done in administrative secrecy. And he had had real trouble with it. That had been misapplied in his case in a horrendous way, which I talk about in my 2005 book at length. And what's the name of the 2005 book? It's called uh, Restoring Free Speech and Liberty on Campus. Yeah. So you've written a lot of books about free speech uh, and, and the and the campus environment. So you, you know, we're in the mid 90s or early to mid. First, oh, first, before I forget, 
your book on pornography must have came out around the same time that Nadine Strawson's book, Defending Pornography, came out, right? Yeah, hers was 93. Mine was 89. Ah, so you were ahead of the curve on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I tell you, here's the other way I was ahead of the curve. And I, I don't know. I don't want to toot a horn here, but... Go um, ahead, do it. Well, <laughs> we had a faculty senate meeting about the student code, and I spoke against it. And I said the following. I said, if you're going to have a restriction to fighting words for fighting words, which is constitutionally permissible if they're defined correctly, you must prohibit all fighting words. You can't just prohibit those dealing with race and gender and religion because that's viewpoint discrimination. And then a few months later, REV v. St. Paul came out and the same argument was made by the Supreme Court. The, the fighting words doctrine um... Is kind of an interesting doctrine and one that I, I don't know if I personally am entirely on board with just because I don't love restrictions on speech that are subject to an audience reaction. I know you have the reasonable person stand, standard, but you know it's it, the reasonable person standard is necessarily a difficult standard. I, I, I want the agency, at least for the speech, if we're going to preclude it or accept it from the first amendment to be on the speaker and not any you know subjective reaction from the listener. So how, I mean what generally is your thinking about the fighting words doctrine because we think about the fighting words doctrine it goes back to a case that right. horrible case. Know, yeah, a horrible case that involves speech that you wouldn't uh, think of as fighting but, words today. Now it's classical protected speech, right? Yeah, I mean, a uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness called a police officer, what, a da goddamn racketeer. Yeah, and fascist, you know. And fascist. Right, right. Um, if we're jailing people because we call them fascist, I mean, I think 40% of the country would be in jail right now. Especially these, <laughs> especially these days, probably. Yeah, right. Now, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a problematic doctrine. It's one reason the Supreme Court has restricted it so much. Mm -hmm. An example I would give my students to go back to the um, uh, Westboro Church case. And we've had interesting experiences with Westboro Church here in Wisconsin. Uh, I actually uh, was a consultant to some students who did a counter protest to the Westboro Church on campus. They wanted to shut them down. And I said, no, counter protest. And so we did. And, uh, but you have a military funeral. And they're there saying, you know, soldiers died. It's because America's evil. You know, they deserve to die. It's horrible stuff. But what if you went up to the family of the deceased soldier soldier, and started making these kind of comments directly to that family's face. And someone got mad and started getting violent. If you're going to have a fighting words exception, that would be the kind of case that it would be intended for. Now, maybe you shouldn't have an exception because you don't want the bad cases to make a rule that are going to affect other cases. But that's, you know, there are cases, at least in principle, I think that a line could be drawn where the speech is so provocative and so personal. And it has to be very personal after Cohen versus um, California. Uh, personal directed insults. I can probably live with that. Plus, there are very few cases. It's hardly ever applied. And the Supreme Court has painted it into a corner pretty much like it has Beauharnais. Maybe not quite as tightly. What is your thought? You know, I, I know we're veering off here into free speech philosophy at this point, but there's there are calls for expanding, uh, as Trump said, the libel laws, and you need to see, you see Clarence Thomas right. on the Supreme Court right. question question the New York Times v. Sullivan case. Right. 
uh, you know, famously, Nat Hentoff debated uh, another scholar in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, just saying we should do away with the defamation doctrine in general, which is a very Nat Hentoff argument. But it's one that I kind of have sympathy for just because I find that it's more often than not used to silence speech um, and to, you know, and you have the anti-slap statutes that, that help prevent some of this. But what's your sense of defamation, the defamation doctrine writ large. Well, are you talking about uh, public officials or just in general? Well, you know, person? it's, it's, it's more difficult with the private person, of course, right. uh, than it is with the public, public officials. The, you know, the actual malice standard, I, th- I think is a good standard if you're going to have the doctrine, but you know, it's of course very difficult to prove and, and uh, right, right. rightfully so, but, um, yeah, I just always wonder, and I, I, I'm just always compelled by Nat Hentoff's general argument. Yeah, I think the best argument against it, I, I'm, I, I'm not against it per se, but I, I think it can be easily abused. And uh, uh, who's the New York Times writer, famous writer, he wrote the famous book on the um, uh, case involving the right to a lawyer if you're an indigent criminal defendant, Gideon's Trumpet. Anthony, Anthony Lewis. Yeah, and he wrote a, a free speech book, too. Right. What was the name of that book? I forget the name of it, but um, I read it. And uh, his argument is that Sullivan, even though it is highly protective of speech about public officials and public figures, it could still bankrupt a paper just because yeah. of, a law- of a lawsuit. And that's what the anti-slap statutes, you know, the strategic lawsuits against public participation statutes are meant to prevent. And they need to be vigorously enforced. But they don't exist in every state. They so, should. you know, yeah. The Supreme Court, maybe if they wanted to, they could expand that and call that kind of remedy that's constitutionally required. Though That gets it into policy questions that are kind of difficult for a court. But Because um, we're talking these anti-slap statutes are, are just that statutes. I mean, they're, they're not court imposed, right, obviously. Right. Yeah, but I think they're important. So, you know, I think in principle, you know, if you intentionally lie about somebody and that does harm that person's reputation in a meaningful way, that is a real harm. That is a discrete enough harm that the law can recognize. But um, by the same token, law firms can abuse these, these, uh, these torts in order to intimidate people and to bankrupt them. So kind of slap-like statutes, I think, are really necessary as antidotes. But isn't, you know, isn't the argument that the free speech activist usually make is that, you know, to to correct an error, you know, you should engage in the marketplace of ideas and fight bad speech with more speech. Is there something peculiar or narrow about defamatory speech that uh, creates a market malfunction that doesn't allow more speech to correct it and that therefore uh, would allow for this tort to... um, Yeah, I haven't thought um, about that enough. That's a really good point, though. Um, and I'm just thinking aloud here. I'm not yeah, answer, asking a, for answers. Yeah. I mean, the harm that can be done, I think, is already so substantial. And you're asking the person to sort of dig out of that hole. And that can actually even compound the problem. So um, I'm not sure I, I can agree with that. But I haven't given that particular point a whole lot of thought. I'm going to try and remember to put in the show notes the Nat Hentoff debate from the late 80s or uh, early. I think, I think it was organized by Cato. Uh, it's it's a really good. Well, that's a great debate. Yeah. So uh, I want to get back to your time at the University of Wisconsin. There was another uh, big uh, 
I think it was a Supreme Court case at the University of Wisconsin that kind of oh, shaped yeah, right. student. That was that the what's the name of the case? Southworth. Southworth. Yeah, and that's a student fees and funding case, right? Yeah. yeah. What what year was that? Do you remember? That was before two, your time. It came out in two thousand. I had been here at fifteen. I was involved in that case, not as a. I had students on both sides of it, so I had a lot of students that were in student government, that uh, were student government activists, partly so they could be in a situation to raise money for student groups. So they were on the pro-student funding side. And then I had students that were more on the conservative side and religious side that didn't want to have to give money to some of these groups. And so it was really interesting. I was on some public forums on this. I was at the Supreme Court when the hearing took place. And I was pretty much on the side of calling it compelled speech. And I think I was wrong. I now agree that the system works. It's a good system as long as you abide by viewpoint neutrality. The problem is that it wasn't viewpoint neutral. Though Southworth, who brought the case, conceded it was uh, stipulated <clears throat> for the court that it was viewpoint neutral because he wanted to bring the whole system down. If the court rules that it's compelled speech, even if the system is viewpoint neutral in terms of allocating funds for student groups, then you can pretty much do away with the whole system if people don't want to give their money. And and just for our listeners who can probably read through the lines from what you're saying, the facts yeah, of the case were, case. yeah, were essentially that you know, like like most uh, students, there was you require you pay a student activity fee, and that's distributed right. to student groups through the student government, and, it, and it's but, mandatory, the mandatory, and it's fee. mandatory. And the student in this case, I forget the particulars of the University of Wisconsin system, but the student in this case was arguing that the distribution of the fees result was compelled speech, right? Compelled speech because now he's being forced to give money that goes to groups he doesn't like. Okay. And so that's a compelled association aspect of it. And he wanted both the federal, at the uh, district level and the appeals level in the federal courts. Then it goes to the Supreme Court and he loses nine nothing. And the reason is that he stipulated that the allocation of fees was viewpoint neutral. And now, granted, the system very much tilts to the left. This is the University of Wisconsin at Madison, right? A notorious or famous school for student activism, most of it on the left-hand side of the spectrum. But that's just the way the marketplace works. As long as it's not distributed in a viewpoint neutral way, then you just have to let the marketplace go where the marketplace is going to go. If more student groups happen to be liberal, then so be or, it. Or more student senators. Right, uh, whatever it is. Well, I guess in that place, I mean, the student senators can't vote to fund not fund or not fund a group based on viewpoint. So I guess That's you're right. right. Then it would, right. then it's based on the dis, the how the composition of the student groups. But I tell you what, <clears throat> um, I had a student who was very much in favor of student funding, who also opposed it. How uh, who also opposed how they did it, and she was in one of my seminars. After the seminar, she brought me to the meeting where they decided whether or not to, to fund Southworth. Excuse me. So I just happened to be at that meeting <laughs> and it was awful. All these, we're not going to give money to this jerk. He's yeah. a conservative Christian. So it was indeed viewpoint non-neutral. And was that not in the, in the discovery or in the facts of the case, the fact that you it, actually have Southworth, students? Southworth stipulated that the system was viewpoint neutral. So it was never part of the case. Oh, well, that's... He wanted to go big oh, and geez. he lost because of that. 
But I tell you, so the university celebrated. So bad this. lawyering. I mean, uh, just don't let your client. Uh, no, I don't know if he well, did it in an affidavit or or what, but yeah, yeah, or he well, did it in, in an interview. Yeah, well, actually, I took place in a in a um, mock trial or moot court kind of exercise in Milwaukee with Southworth's team, and I offer, offered to do it for the other side as well, and they just said, "No, we don't need you." <laughs> so I'm viewpoint neutral on it, but. Um, uh, so, you know, the Supreme Court just said, look, part, you know, courts also defer to other institutions. And they said there was a valid pedagogical reason for having the forum. And we will largely defer to the university if there is a valid pedagogical reason. You know, that comes out of a lot of school cases, the pedagog reasonable pedagogical purpose test. And uh, so he lost. And the university celebrated. And I went home that night, though, after the court case came down, and I said to my wife, I said, yeah, but you know what? They have to be viewpoint neutral now. And so in that sense, Southworth did win, even though it wasn't the particular victory that he wanted. And as far as I know since then, and I've had some involvement with this in other cases, uh, the student government has striven very conscientiously to be viewpoint neutral. It's a hard thing to do. You know, what if one group has 20 people, another group has 1,000 people? You know, uh, There's a lot of different criteria they have to try to weigh and so there are a lot of grounds in which you can maybe bring a lawsuit, but they really tried hard. There have been a couple other lawsuits after that that came about, and they had to kind of get their act together more. But on the whole, they've—I think—they've carried out the viewpoint neutral standard pretty well. Well, I remember when I was at Indiana University, I was involved with a student group that was seeking to—and I was a libertarian student in college—seeking uh, to bring a. A, an economist to campus and the student government before it would give us the funds, we were a registered student group, uh, the funds to bring them went to the economics department and said, you know, well, what do you think of this guy? And you can imagine at a, at a school like Indiana, uh, they weren't big fans of the libertarian economist and we were denied funding on that basis. Right. So, you, you know, in that sense, was it viewpoint discriminatory? Probably, but do you also, have the bandwidth to do your due diligence and go to academic departments and ask, well, is this person uh, have sufficient credentials and experience right, right. to, um, you know, warrant the thousand dollars or yeah, whatever it was yeah. that we're going to give. And, uh, you know, I, so how do you, how do you weigh that? How do you weigh? That's a tougher decision because, you know, that's where universities want to have some sort of control over this. You don't want to spend a lot of money just bringing in total quacks because we're intellectual institution, right? We have intellectual standards. We don't hire quacks to teach. Well, some people argue we do too much of that now, but we're not supposed <laughs> to, right? It violates our norms. And uh, I don't think there's necessarily, it depends again on how it's applied, but in, in Wisconsin, in order to get certain support from security or uh, the organization that allocates rooms, you have to get a, a sponsor. And it could be any faculty member. And if you don't get that sponsor, you can still bring somebody in, but then you don't get some of the benefits that allow that to facilitate and assist in that process. And uh, I don't know. It's I, I'm sort of I'm ambivalent about that a bit. Well, it's tough uh, because it's 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 sort of a um, burden or even a tax on more outside the mainstream or controversial student groups. That is very true. And in that sense, it's it's the effect is viewpoint discriminatory, right? Because if you're if you're outsourcing the decision making to faculty members who are not going to 
become the faculty advisor for the you know the alt-right student group then you effectively can't have an alt-right student group with the same benefits as as other student groups that is true and that's a problem with that's why if you're going to go this route you have to put in safeguards to the best of your ability yeah and i know of faculty members because fire has dealt with this issue from time to time there are faculty members who will on principle be the faculty advisors for these groups um well, and I there i think those. i was one of those Oh, were you? Many times. Yeah. I mean, it's important. It's important. And I know there are other systems which if you cannot find a faculty advisor on your own, the administration will assign you one and they'll be kind well, of. Okay. That's good. I totally approve of that. Yeah. They'll, they'll serve just kind of an administrative role in, in that sense. But Right. Right. But the, to deny, uh, I think, is a problem. I agree. Yeah. So, you need to come up with some sort of solution. And I understand why you want to have a faculty advisor involved as sort of a liaison between the students and the administration and to make sure that there's no, uh, you know, mismanagement of money or any other sort of funny, funny business that might be happening. But, you know, I realize we're already at the 45 minutes that I had. Uh, no, uh, it happens with me. I'm sorry. No, no. If you're willing to stay on, I'd like to continue the conversation for a little bit sure. longer sure. Uh, because where we left off in kind of your career timeline was with the faculty speech code. Uh, it's early in the game. I know it's early in the game, but you know, if we can kind of speed, speed up the timeline a little bit, did you end up defeating the faculty speech code or was that, or was KFAR or the committee for academic freedom and rights established to help defeat it? Or was it established in the wake of We were it? already there. Okay. Uh, we had formed in 1996 over a notorious case in the history department here. KFAR had two functions. It was one to defend faculty members who had been uh, problematically, I say problematically because we're defending what we found out once we looked into it, uh, accused of having violated university rules that dealt with speech. And we had about 20 some cases over the years. We were together from 96 through 2016 when I retired, then we disbanded. We had 20 some cases here and other, other schools in Wisconsin. And we had satisfactory conclusions to virtually every one of them. And so that was our one purpose. We had outside funding, $100,000. From the university? No, it was from the Bradley Foundation. Okay. But they had no strings attached, 100% our autonomy. We picked cases. We defended a few left-wing speakers because there was some censorship of that going on in the system. Yeah. What was the history department case that kicked it off? Well, (laughs) (laughs) got another 45. No, actually, I don't. (laughs) It was an improper investigation of a professor for alleged um, discriminatory teaching and and pedagogy. And it was it was a trumped up thing, pretty much set up in response to another case in which the activists didn't think the proper penalty was inflicted. So they came up with this investigation and it was improper. And the target went to the uh, attorney general of the state who became our governor later, Doyle, and told him about it. And Doyle called the university and said, you better lawyer up and stop doing what you're doing. And then so our group formed out of that. Very nonpartisan group. And um, then we had several other cases. Plus, we devoted ourselves to policy and to campus politics. And the first big political victory was the faculty speech code because we found out about Richard Long, what happened to him. The guy I mentioned earlier called in from McFarland and we found out about some other cases 
that nobody knew about. And we made them public. And we generated support to build a movement on campus to abolish the faculty speech code. And we were the first university in the country to rescind a code without being ordered to by a court. It was due to a political movement that we won through the faculty senate. And it was a year and a half or two year movement in which we mobilized and built up support. And we found out we had a majority of the faculty senate on our side. We were like, wow, we thought we were these free speech, you know, crazies out there on the margin and stuff that we were mainstream because we, we ignited the silent majority. Was this faculty speech code a system-wide speech code? Because I remember when I was at Indiana University, some of the worst speech codes were system-wide. And when you say two years, I mean, two years would be, would be a fast track to get rid of a system-wide policy. Right, right. Light speed. The student code was system-wide. That's why I had to go through the Board of Regents. And the Regents never adopted that reform I mentioned earlier because of RAV that came down right before they were going to endorse it. So we haven't had a student code since then in terms of regular speech. There are others that we could talk about, we don't have the time, that I've been working on with uh, Azar, with your, your group. Yeah, Azar, yeah. Azar, Azar. I, I, yeah, Azar Majid, he's our uh, vice president of policy reform and he's just a dynamo, him and his team. No, he's a fantastic guy. Yeah, uh, are just speech code slayers across the country. <laughs> the faculty code was specific to UW-Madison. So we had to go through the faculty senate to deal with that rather than the regents. And we won it. And this is, you know, fire was started around the same time. 1999, yeah. We had Harvey come out here. Harvey advised us. Harvey, we had dinner with Harvey at my house. And I tell you, I was so into this movement that I didn't even watch the Super Bowl the night that Harvey came over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I kept taking a break every 15 minutes to you know, check out the score. It was a game, you know, it was, uh, Atlanta against Denver. I didn't even care really. But, I, you know, I'm a big football fan, so I had to keep, keep track. I didn't even watch it because of Harvey. Was that John Elway's last game? <laughs> it was. Uh, yes, it was. It was his last game. Uh, Mr. Ed, we used to call him. I'm a Raider fan, and we always called him Mr. Ed. And um, uh, Are you still a Raider fan now that they're in Las Vegas? I'm not happy about it. <laughs> but it's like the mafia. Once you're in, you can't get out with the Raiders. Yeah. It's not allowed. Um, so that was really, that launched us. And we did a bunch of other things after that. Um, and actually, sometimes we were even brought into the administration to advise them mm -hmm. because our group had some success. And so that's, and then fire started right after that. It was 2000, was it, or 1999? 1999, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I, gave, I got them in touch with Bradley. Bradley helped fund them. So fire was sort of, you know, I mean, it was my cores and, and, and cores wrote a big article on it, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in Reason magazine called Breaking the Code and interviewed me and a bunch of other people. We might have that uh, copy of that article. So yeah, it's a famous article. And uh, so we were sort of right there with fire at the beginning. You know, now when you read and hear about these campus free speech debates, it, it seems like they've been with us forever. And it's like, it's just a natural part. It's like one of the things that we talk about 
in higher education. I mean, you can read Inside Higher Ed every week, and there are discussions about academic. Fr- but back then, it might, it was like you know that heart that Coors article and KFAR were probably on the cutting edge. Am I right? I mean, were these things that were part of the national discourse about higher education much before the nineties? No, no. Speech codes were were something new under the sun, under that called under the pedagogical sun. And uh, I mentioned in my new book, most previous waves of censorship on campus and in the country, they didn't last forever, right? There were cycles. McCarthyism died. This hasn't. This is, we have our interregnums, I call it in my, in my book, periods where things are sort of relaxed and then boom, they come back. And the latest stuff we have are all these bureaucratic policies like bias reporting systems and the like, microaggression policies, trigger warning policies, a lot of the training policies. And those are meant to achieve sort of through the back door what speech codes attempted to achieve through the front door. But the front door was problematic because you have this thing called the First Amendment and you have uh, university policies that guarantee the same rights to their faculty members as the First Amendment if they're private schools. So speech codes, we won the verbal war. It's a speech code. And this is America. We don't like speech codes. We don't want no stinking speech codes, right? But these new policies, oh, they're not, gonna, they're not there to censor. They're there to inform. And so now you have these Orwellian policies. You saw that piece by um, the dispatch about a year ago about how biased reporting systems are being used. Yeah, well, we we did the first big report. We at Fire did the first yeah, big that. report on bias response teams, and it was Adam Steinbaugh, who is our director of individual our individual rights defense program. FOIAed like something like or public records requested something like two hundred and fifty schools to see if they had bias response teams, and wrote collected all the data, and that really kind of kicked off the pushback against them. But they're yeah, all I mean, they're all William. Very much so. The the KFAR, so the KFAR model, was that emulated elsewhere no. in the country? And it, no. and why not? Because, you know, fire is only so effective. You know, I'd like to think we're pretty effective, but you're going to be more effective if you have people at the institution, faculty members especially, who have interact with the students, are well-respected, know the administrators, who are actually doing the work on the ground to reform these policies and to protect each other. I mean, you're all faculty members. It sounds like you're protecting the rights of fellow faculty members. Why not emulate that elsewhere? Well, we, we were hoping that would happen. You know, and the book I came out with later was meant to do that. The CORS article. Our, our movement was covered nationwide. All sorts of major media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, etc. Partly because we pushed it that way. I was involved in kind of outreach to different media organizations. So the whole country was kind of watching. And the phone ran off the hook after that boat went through. And we abolished the code. So I was hoping for that. And when I worked for IHS, I'm no longer working with them, by the way. Oh, <laughs> so scratch that uh, that introductory line. <laughs> you should have corrected me. <laughs> the whole purpose of what I was doing there was exactly to do what you're talking about. And it's really hard to do. I often think of KFAR as a, it's like a, an eclipse, but a really fancy one where a b- whole bunch of planets have to line up. Uh-huh. It was just the right time at the right place. And the people we had on that, 
I had people on KFAR, the, the first president before I became the president of it was Stan Payne, probably the world's leading scholar on European fascism. 28 books. I mean, you don't mess with this guy. And we had several people like that in our group. You know, I was always kind of you know, looking up at them. And uh, uh, these are people you couldn't dismiss as these are the campus kooks that are too committed to free speech. Plus, we had good cases that we gave as examples of why this stuff could be pernicious. So it was a very fortuitous set of circumstances. A lot of campuses, you have one or two guys that feel this way. They're isolated. They're not able to develop that kind of synergy that Tamur uh, Karan in his book that I talk about in both books about uh, private truths, public lies, you know that argument of how like the Soviet Union, nobody wanted, no one liked communism in the Soviet Union anymore. But they could, they're afraid to speak out until a It's the emperor's has no clothes exactly. situation. And I, we hear at FIRE and I hear personally from professors every week who are disappointed with the environments and the direction that their campus is going in, but they don't talk to each other. Because you have the, you know, those private truths. They're afraid of being ostracized. They're afraid that the person that they want to go and approach about it is not on their side. Exactly. But there's more of them than they think there are because I hear from them. John McWhorter hears from them. Are on exactly. Board. Well, look at look, Laura Kipnis. <clears throat> her book, she became a national weather vane. I stress this in my new book. I use her as an example. And suddenly she learned about all these cases all over the country she had no idea were going on because they were beneath the radar screen. So the first thing you gotta do, and this is what I did initially, when I made my conversion, I taught a First Amendment class, I had a lot of students, I was well known on campus, so I spoke out. I mean, I was sort of invulnerable, you know? Um, they couldn't really, I had tenure, and I had a following, and I had some allies, and so we were able to speak out and at least give public presence to these principles and why they mattered. But we couldn't get traction in terms of mobilization and policy innovation until we got KFAR to come together because of the event in the history department, which made campus in, in state news. And then everything just crystallized. I can't begin to tell you the amazement and the feeling of satisfaction we had when suddenly our voices, which were out there, that was the first step. Get those damn voices out there. Because otherwise no one's gonna be thinking about this stuff. You know, it's, it doesn't, it has a half-life principle. It's not mana from heaven. And they, or they don't know that there are other people out there who think the same way they do. And then things here just came together and we were blown away. It was wow. And so we were able to build on that over the years. Now, Wisconsin has sort of slid back, you know, I mean, like everywhere, but there's still some stuff going on here that's better than a lot of people know. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the story. <laughs> student groups operate the same way. You'll have a very active and successful student group, and then the principal leaders, you know, groups are often determined by their leadership, the success of them, and then they'll, they'll leave or they'll retire, and the groups tend to deteriorate and become not as successful as they were before. So you see that with faculty groups, it sounds like, in the same way you do with student groups. But you you also 
trained isn't the right word, but inspired another generation of free speech advocates. The previous, one of the previous guests on this podcast was Ian oh, Rosenberg. Yeah, yeah. He and I are going to be doing a similar thing like this between with his book and my book. Yeah. Uh, the fight for free speech. Madison alumni association. Yeah. Ian and Ian came right before all this stuff. He graduated in 95 and then all this stuff really started happening in 96. Yeah. But he refers to you as a mentor and you know, Alex Mori, who works at fire. Oh, sure. Now. She was my yeah. TA. Yeah. And she became inspired by these issues, uh, through you. And I've heard from other people who have gone through your classes and had you as a mentor who were inspired to yeah, become fun. activists in this work. The first thing you got to tell faculty, they're reluctant. Stick your, it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's exciting. You know, if you, if you get it right, but it's, we were a special kind of situation. Like I, like I said, um, but you got to find allies. You know, we know we dealt with some professors. There's one from New Jersey that was here for a year who got persecuted in a totally wrong way, bad way. Well, it's always wrong when you're persecuted, right? But he was accused improperly and he had no support. I mean, people would call him on the phone and say, I'm sorry, I wish this weren't happening to you, but they wouldn't speak out publicly. Yeah, it's the same case today. Same thing we yeah, hear all the time. You know, um, and so people are intimidated. And things, given the environment now, who knows, you know, look, look at this stuff that's going on at Princeton. And they got some good people there that are doing something about it, by the way, that you're about to hear even more about probably fairly soon. Um, that, um, but without those people, it was a professor at Princeton said that it, what they're trying to, what they tried to do there, remember that faculty letter? Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. over the summer. Yeah. yeah. And he said, this, this will lead to a civil war. Yeah. Th yeah. Yeah. And thankfully there are great faculty yeah. uh, th at Princeton who are pushing back. And, you know, we have some people with deep Princeton connections here at fire, including Samantha Harris and Alan Charles Coors, you know, so um, the, by, by way of closing your, your book, free speech and liberal education. It's a, it's a, you know, the, the subtitle is a plea for intellectual diversity and tolerance, which is slightly different than free speech and academic freedom, though related, right? And this idea of intellectual diversity is almost a necessary requirement to protect against the sort of censorship. It, it, it allows, uh, well, intellectual diversity, it helps with the institutional disconfirmation that's necessary in an academic environment, but also helps to check the biases and the, the more extreme inclinations that any mono group might have. Cass Sunstein, I refer to him often in the podcast, did a study of judges that found that you had more extreme opinions on a panel of three judges that all had the same opinion than even that you would if even if there was just one dissenter. That's right. Yeah, it, tends, it spreads out to the more extreme. Absolutely. Um, intellectual diversity is a, a sign of intellectual freedom and tolerance, right? Because it'll kind of naturally happen, at least to some extent. And also, it's 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 a check and balance kind of thing. It's a checker, you know, using Rausch's term of checking, mm -hmm. the checking function of liberal speech. science. Yeah, so that helps promote what universities are about, which is my chapter two, the pursuit of truth. Yeah, well, Jonathan Haidt, you know, says that most universities claim that they are in favor of the pursuit of, pursuit of truth, but right now, you know, they they're claiming that, but also 
acting like a social justice university. He said you can either be one or the other. You can be an activist university or a university pursuit of the pursuit of truth. But let me ask you this other question that kind of throws a wrench in the intellectual diversity argument, which I'm very much in favor for. But a lot of the ways that academic departments make their name is to not have intellectual diversity. You think about the Chicago School of Economics, for example. Uh, you know, you have a academic department build built around a specific viewpoint, which can lead to more funding. And but as so long as you have not every academic department in the country who ascribes to that opinion, then you have the academic departments fighting against each other. It's just like, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think that being a professor requires you to just neutrally lay out all the information and tell the students to make up their own minds. We made the best, some of the best teachers I had, like Burns, and there's many others. I could, you know, I'm so indebted to people that, I, that influenced me, um, <clears throat> that they had a point of view. But they did it in an intellectually, intellectually powerful way that also engaged and was open to challenge. And uh, if a professor has a particular point of view, that's different from every professor having the same point of view, as you just said. And of course, that applies to departments nationally. Um, so you kind of want people that are committed to their truths. But it's a question of how you do it. And then how those truths are, um, how they relate to each other at a broader scale. Yeah, you want battles between different belief systems or arguments to happen. But if if every department and every at every college in the country believes the same thing, then you never get that confrontation that is necessary to uh, improve the knowledge base that we have now. Well, I talk in the book in my the chapter where I talk about why it all matters is sort of the key chapter, chapter seven. And the last chapter is all about mobilization, stuff we talked about, much more practical. Suggestions on how to mobilize to, to influence these things on campus. Uh, but I, I talk about Holmes and the famous Abrams dissent. He talks about fighting faiths. And I mentioned Mill, who said he admires these people that are so committed to pursuing something that's narrow and deep. We want people that, that are willing to courageously confront others who are willing to pursue something despite the costs. Well, those people are a little bit fanatical, right? Or they're a little bit, you know, they're committed. So how does that relate then to the need for quote unquote tolerance? And I said, well, one model then is, is to have uh, competition. So as long as you have enough people that are like that, that have, that are checking each other and have different views, then the marketplace is what resolves that problem. And then those who make the policy for speech, not policy of the ideas, but the policy for governing speech, they have to have a kind of a different mentality, uh, which I call democratic character, which means that, yeah, you're committed to an idea, you're committed to a truth, but you harbor sufficient self-doubt in a way that makes you more thoughtful. And if anything, that's what a university should be, is it should make us more thoughtful. I say that over and over in the book. Just be, we're here to train people to be better citizens, but mainly to they become better citizens because they're more thoughtful. And they understand that truth is, is a difficult thing to achieve and that no one has a monopoly on it. So you want to guarantee that there be open competition 
This is the Rauschian. You know, Rausch says, let a, a thousand prejudices flower, right? As long as they check each other. And then there's the other type that's just sort of, I have a truth, but I, I entertain a little bit of doubt. I might be wrong. And that creates a different kind of character. You take a deep breath and step back. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, you know, John Stuart Mill argument, the, what Greg Lukianoff, my boss and the president of fire calls the, uh, calls Mill Trident. You know, there are, there are three main arguments or there are three main outcomes from any argument. You might be right. You might be wrong, or you might be partially right. And all of them are bolstered by free and open discourse. If you, you might be right, you get a greater conception of your truth. Uh, by a free and open encounter. You might be wrong, then you'll be, you know, you'll have a chance to check your error, or you might be partially right, and you'll learn in which ways you're partially right and partially wrong. Yeah, well, Greg is awesome. Yeah, he's great on this stuff. Um, I quote in the book, uh, Dana Villa, wrote a book called Socratic Citizenship. He's sort of a, uh, a Rendian scholar. You know, he's, um, he talks about the, how Socrates is really the basis of the pursuit of truth, but there's also an ethical dimension. And he says that by pursuing the truth, we make ourselves better people because pursuing the truth also requires that kind of self-doubt and checking oneself, leads to self-restraint. And he has a line that I quote all the time. It says that uh, any, any idea, no matter how virtuous it appears, becomes a recipe for injustice if it is not allowed to be challenged. And that applies to all the, you know, the, the pet policies or the, you know, the sacred things on campus today. We need to question everything. And that spirit needs to be inseminated, disseminated somehow. I remember I was hearing a speaker on campus. Uh, it was actually a, a, a speaker who was the spark for a big campus controversy at Indiana University, Pastor Douglas Wilson from Idaho. He famously debated religion with Christopher Hitchens on a uh, nationwide tour. But he began a speech by saying, I, I, you know, I think you know, I think I'm always right, but I don't, or I, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. 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 That's great. <laughs> which, which I thought was a good way of putting it. You know, sure is. I, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. It had. You don't want milk toast, right? You don't want people to, Oh, I, I think I might be wrong. I, I, here's what I sort of think, but I'm sorry. I think, you know, you don't want that. You want strength, right? I mean, you want virtue, but you want thoughtfulness. That's great. What was your major at Indiana? I was a journalism major who ended up adding a double major with history. So I thought I was going to go the um, go into advertising and marketing, but I interned at Fire in 2010, and uh, Greg Lukianoff was in the market for an assistant when I graduated and encouraged me to apply. And you know, almost a decade later, the rest they say is, is no, history. You seem a great fit. So that's, it's great. I'm glad you went that route. Well, fire is a great place to work. And especially for those who are principled and passionate and for those who are looking for an environment, uh, much like the one that we've talked about higher education being, uh, in this conversation, one where people from all different perspectives can come together around shared principles and values. And that's definitely here at fire. So, you know, uh, I think we'll leave it there, Professor Downs. Uh, if we've been doing this podcast for four and a half years, and I can't believe we haven't had you on yet, it's just, it's your, it's almost like water. You you swim in the same environment as us. It's like yeah, yeah. yeah I, I it's you're always an omnipresence. That it's 
um, but I'll have to have you on again. So thank, thanks again for yeah, taking the yeah. time. Uh, you know, especially to, I think the last half we got into the mobilization stuff and the, you know, the, the kind of nitty gritty of it. That's really good stuff. Yeah. I, I, I have been criticized by listeners before, uh, just assuming they know the background of the people I'm, I'm interviewing. So I always trying to try and get the autobi or the biography, excuse me. in there at the beginning. So anyway, uh, thanks again. Okay, well, thank you. Say hi to everyone there. Will do. That was Professor Donald Downs, and the book is Free Speech and Liberal Education, A Plea for Intellectual Diversity and Tolerance. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We also take email feedback at speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, recently rebranded from Google Play. Uh, reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.